Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at These are moments of glory. Now, hopefully, most of you guys are married in here. Hopefully, your, your answer should be the day you got married, right? That should be a moment of glory, especially for all you guys. Everyone should be saying amen, every single husband. Thank you. All right. Or maybe it was when you had your first child or your second child or your third. The Elliots aren't in here, so that really only applies to them. <laughs> but we all have these moments of glory. But you know what? And, and I'm not trying to bring down these moments of glory, but what they are is their moments. They're shadows. They're small foretastes of the glory to come when we're with the Lord in eternity. And this morning, as we're walking through this passage, we're going to take a glimpse of the foretaste of glory. We're going to look at a moment in which God brings his glorified self in front of Peter, James, and John. A moment so powerful in the lives of the disciples as well as Peter, that at the end of Peter's life, he used this example to proclaim the gospel even as he was coming towards death. This example burned in his heart and he was still using it as an example to stir the reader's affections and the church, the early church's affections for the Lord. And this is what he said, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. This passage is a moment burned into Peter's life that he would never forget. And I hope that you guys have those moments of glory. I hope that you've been able to experience those moments of glory that you will never forget. And the transfiguration that we just read is one that serves as a moment and a foretaste that we are going to look at of the glory that is to come. And what a day, as I'm reading this passage through this week, I thought to myself, what a day to be on the mountain and see Christ in his glorified state. That had to be something that just stayed with the disciples. And I hope it stays with us far past this morning. So I'm going to give you two points um, that I want to take from this passage. And the first one is this. Prayer gives us a foretaste of glory. I'll say that again for those who are taking notes. Prayer gives us a foretaste of glory. And the second one, and the second point is what I'm going to stay on most of this morning. But Jesus bridges the gap between God and man. Jesus bridges the gap between God and man. And so this morning, I'm going to jump back into the text. It's something that I haven't done in a while, and I hope that it brings edification to you guys. So don't get frustrated with me as we read a text and stop and read a text and stop. I promise we'll get through this, and we will be done by the time we're supposed to be. (laughs) So starting back in verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And I want to sit here for a moment. I want to sit in this place for 
just a moment and just let the weight of prayer, the spiritual discipline of prayer, weigh on us. You see, the spiritual discipline of prayer is something that was very custom to Jesus' life. Luke shows us in, in chapter 4 that Jesus prays before the beginning of his ministry. Luke goes on to show us in chapter 6 that he prays for the choosing of his disciples before he grabs those 12 and brings them along. And then the famous Luke 22 where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is praying before his crucifixion. Now those are just three examples, but if you walk through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that prayer is an intimate point of God's ministry, of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And it's so much so that after Jesus left, we see that pattern followed by the disciples and the church. Acts chapter 1, the disciples are locked in a room pray, praying for the Holy Spirit to come, praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to light a fire and for them to be able to go and preach the gospel. And Pentecost comes and Peter takes that day and 5,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost. But we see in Acts chapter 4, they're praying again for the church and the growth of the church. Acts chapter 7, we see the disciples praying and Stephen in his own right praying before he gets stoned. And what's beautiful about this prayer is that Saul's in that crowd. Saul hears that prayer. In Acts chapter 9, Saul's prayer of conversion is where he opens up and he sees the light of the gospel and he prays to be saved. We see Acts 10 and 11, Peter's prayer that the gospel would be spread to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, the church prays over Paul and Barnabas before they go out on their first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is in prison, praying and singing hymns, and an earthquake comes, and he frees them from prison. And he doesn't leave. He sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. And that jailer becomes a start of the Macedonian church in Philippi. Over and over again, we see the New Testament highlight the importance of prayer and the power and the glory that it brings to the life of a believer. So when we talk about, when I talk about spiritual disciplines, when Dwayne talks about spiritual disciplines as he did last week, prayer is one of them. Prayer is something that we need to press into as believers in Christ. But more often than not, and, and I'm really revealing more of my heart than anything when I talk about prayer, more often than not, it's something that we do when we're not busy or we get convicted about for maybe a couple of days and we get into prayer and then we find something else to do. Now, if I were to poll every one of you in here, which by the question of the glory, you're probably not going to raise your hands, which is okay. But if I were to poll every single one of you in here, how many of you would say, yeah, I, I need to pray more? I think we all be raising our hands. Okay, yeah, good. I got some people. Thank you. But it's the truth. I think we all need to pray more and we know it. We know that we do. We know that it's important. We know that it stirs our affection, grows us in the gospel of Christ. But let me give you an example from my own life because I don't want to throw you guys under the bus. It's really easy to do that for me. This week, as I was preparing the sermon, as I was praying over it, I was getting ready for bed. I'm reading on this passage, reading some commentaries, and um, I get done and I just kind of get ready to pray. Um, and when I talk about I'm getting ready to pray, it's really just me putting away anything that's going to distract me. Because if I start to pray and my phone's right there, I'm going to open Facebook up for the 30th time and try to find a brand new I don't know, status or something like that. 
So I put anything that distracts me away. I pull out my prayer journal. Don't judge me for that. Yes, I have a journal because I'm very scatterbrained and I need to write things down. And so I pull this journal out. And if I don't have this journal, I'll be honest with you guys. I'm just going to pray about what's important in my heart. And most often than not, I'm praying about my singleness. So be happy for you guys, or be happy that I have a, a list because I pray for all of you. Otherwise, I'd just be praying about that. <laughs> I'm just being honest. But as I'm pulling this out, I'm, I'm feeling this, man, I don't want to do this. I just want to go to sleep. I just want to put this aside. I've, I've done enough studying. I've read enough of scripture. I've done enough passages of sermon prep, and, and I just want to go to bed. And then I start to, my, I start to think to myself, I'm, I'm on a passage of prayer, and yet I don't want to pray. I want to put this aside, and I want to go, you know what, I'll, I'll pray tomorrow. I'll wake up and pray. I know I will, which that never happens. So what's going on in my heart? Like the entire week that I was preparing for this sermon, I was very gung-ho about praying through that journal, praying through each and every one of your lives, and just praying that God would do a work, and then all of a sudden, I just don't want to. I want to get to it later. I think it reveals something in my heart that I don't see prayer as an utmost importance in my life. And I think we tend to treat prayer in the same manner, like anything else that we have. Like it's something that we will eventually get to. But if we're busy, you know what, we'll put it aside. And then if we're free, we'll, we'll, we'll take some time. We'll go before the Lord in prayer. And I think all of us can say that we have a desire to pray more. And I think that's a good thing desire to have a reflection time with the Lord, like a desire to go before him and make that a priority. We just don't do it. But what we see in scripture, what we see in the life of Jesus and his disciples is the exact opposite. Over and over again, we're reminded that Jesus's ministry, before he starts to do something in his life, he's an intentional about getting away and taking time to be with the Lord, to find rest in him. And I don't often like to get up and say, well, Jesus does this, so we should. Because there are a lot of things that we can't do. We can't raise anybody from the dead. We can't tell a storm to stop. Because that would be great, right? It'd be like, all this coldness just needs to go away. If I could do that, that would be great. But we can't do that. But there is one thing that we can follow a pattern of Jesus's life. And that is prayer. That is getting alone with God and praying. And I think the majority, for the majority of us, when it comes to our restlessness, when it comes to our anxiousness, when it comes to how we respond to people who we are frustrated with or people in our lives that God has placed around us, I think the direct link of our anxiousness, the direct link of our frustrations when we can't control something has to do with the lack of prayer. And I want to read from James Chapter four, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And I think when it comes to our hearts, when it comes to our lives and the frustrations that we can have, the longings and the wantings and the anxiousness that we have that sometimes control our lives more than we'd like to is a direct link to our lack of prayer. 
And I think the love that we have for who God has placed in our lives and who we should be sharing life and the gospel with is directly linked to how we pray for them. John Piper says this, the depth and value of what you bring in your heart to other people will depend on what you do in solitude. And I don't want to sound very legalistic and pharisaic. What I want to do is produce something in you guys that would push you to prayer. I don't want you to go home and say, you know what, Josh said, I need to pray some more. So I'm going to go in my room, I'm going to lock it, and I'm just going to pray for two hours. And then you put a weight on yourself because this isn't a, a thing that you've been doing. And you get tired and you get frustrated because you can't pray for two hours. I want to produce something in you that brings you to the foot of God, that shows you, man, I love coming to the Lord and praying to him. Because guys, the beauty is we, we don't have to go to somebody else to intercede for us. We have the creator of the universe opening his arms to say, come to me, pray, let me know what's going on in your life because I already know it. And a lot of times we don't. A lot of times we just don't take that offer. And so my challenge to you just on that is let's, let's start to pray more. Let's start to go to God with our anxiousness, with our frustrations, with our love for one another, as well as the people around us. And we can start small. The beauty of math is that it, it doesn't lie. And so if we start small with 10 minutes a day, and then the next week we add 10 more minutes, and then the next week we add 10 more minutes, and then at the end of the month we add 10 more minutes, we've already prayed for 40 minutes. And I know that seems like a long time, but if we just continue to slowly add things into our prayer life, we can get there. We can get to a place where we are having a time where we commune with the Lord. That's why I say that prayer brings this small taste of glory to us because we get to commune with the creator of the universe. And we think about that. God says that he wants us to pray to him. This is the God who created all things, who holds all things together, who sustains all things. And I'm like David when it comes to prayer. Who is God that he is mindful of me? Who is God that he would want me to come and pray to him? But we get that opportunity. Now I could, I gotta stop on that because I could keep going, but I, I, I definitely want us to just be challenged not by discipline, but by love. Because discipline doesn't, produce love, but love produces discipline. And when we understand the love that God has showed us, then we can get into a discipline like prayer and love it and enjoy it. So let's keep going. And this is my favorite part of the passage um, that Jesus transforms and Jesus transfigures himself before Peter, James, and John. Like I said earlier, it's one of the most amazing things that Jesus did, at least for my reading of the scriptures, one of the most amazing things that he did before his death and resurrection. And it also falls along with my second point, that Jesus has bridged the gap between God and man. Now, before we jump back into the text, um, and for all of you type A people, I have really like created points and sub points um, just for you guys, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, but there are three encounters that we see on this mountain three encounters that we will see in this passage. The first one is that Jesus transfigures or transforms himself. 
The second encounter is Peter's response. And the third encounter is God's proclamation to Peter's response. So if you jump back in the text with me, starting in verse 29. And it says, as he was praying, this is Jesus, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we see here, Luke tells us that Jesus alters his state. He's altered into glory. And if you go through the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark, we see that Jesus is actually transfigured into his glorified state. Mark goes as far to tell us that Jesus's clothes were so radiant and so white, it's as if a lightning bolt was standing in front of him. But why is this important to us? Why is it important to a first century Jew that they are on the mountain with Jesus in his glorified state? Jump over to Hebrews chapter 1. Keep your, keep your thumb or your finger in Luke and jump over to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. He's, Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through him was also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I hope you caught that. That verse that said he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, the exact imprint of God's glory, is now standing on earth in front of the disciples, in front of first century Jews. And this is important to them because for 500 years, the Israelites had not seen God's glory. You see, in the Old Testament, God would reveal himself in many different forms. Pillars of fire, pillars of smoke, chariots of fire, burning bushes, earthquakes, wind and water. Over and over we see God revealing himself in glory to the Israelites. But because of Israel's stubbornness and because of their rebelliousness, the spirit of God stopped speaking to them. He stopped revealing his glory for 500 years. Now to put that into perspective, the United States as a nation has only been around for 241. We would need 259 more years as a nation to reach the amount of time God was silent to Israel. But now, through the person of Jesus Christ, we see God's glory revealed again. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal to Peter, James, and John who have only heard about God's glory and now it's in front of them. And it's a big deal to us because this side of the cross through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's glory is revealed to us. God's glory is revealed through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And as Luke shows us in, God, in Christ's glory, he shows us that this glory was a transfiguration of Jesus' state. 
it reveals to us that the glory in Christ formed from the inside out. Luke would tell us in this passage that the glory of Christ radiated from inside of him. It wasn't something that just changed on the outside, changed his clothes, but it came from within. If you can picture a lampshade, when you take a lampshade and put it on top of a lamp, we see that the light radiates from in to out. And the Greek phrase used to describe Jesus' altered state describes a change describes a change on the outside, but it comes from within. And the word that is used here is the exact opposite of a masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come from within. Like one of those masquerade balls that you guys have ever seen, where the mask covers the outward appearance of a person, but it does not change the true identity of that person behind the mask. That's the exact opposite of what Luke is picturing here or trying to show us. Now, here's a question I want to ask you guys, and this, again, will involve you answering, or should anyways. How many of you guys grew up in church? Raise your hand if you guys grew up in church, so the majority of us. How many of you guys did not grow up in church? Okay, cool. So we see that everybody in here has either grown up in or out of church. Now, for those of you who have seen or have been around believers, whether in and inside the church or outside of the church, How often or how much can you say that you saw a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of masquerading from people who called themselves Christians? I've seen it as I grew up. I'm sure even outside of the church, you've seen people who claim to be believers, but the gospel of Christ has not transformed their lives. I think for the majority of us, we can say that, right? For the majority of us, we can say that we have seen nominal believers who have this outward way of living, who give lip service to the gospel, have picked up on what church lingo may be to sound like they know what they're talking about, to sound like the gospel has actually changed their lives, but their lifestyles reveal that the gospel has not transformed them from within. And the reason I ask that this morning, the reason I ask those questions is because we see here in this passage that the glory of God transforms us not from outside in, but from inside out. Romans 12, 2 challenges us that we shouldn't be conformed to the image of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's what the glory of God does. It transforms us from the inside out. It changes us into the likeness of Christ. But if we're honest with each other, how often do we have seasons where we would rather veil our lives or where we would have a masquerade over what we're going through instead of allowing the glory of God to change us from the inside out? And it isn't it easy in those seasons to live a life that we pull a veil over what's going on when we aren't pressing into that glory, when we aren't pressing into the community that God has placed around us and where it's easy to pretend like everything is okay. But the glory of God goes after that. The glory of the gospel goes after us feeling like we don't and can't be vulnerable in places like the community of God. 
the glory of God goes after us finding identity in what people might think about us when they hear what's going on in our lives, the glory of God reveals to us that what Christ has done on the cross is our identity. And we no longer have to veil our lives in front of everyone because we find identity, we rest in the glory of the cross, the glory of the gospel. And the crazy thing is, especially as believers, even when we try to live this veiled life, our lives will ultimately reveal what we're holding back. Our lives will ultimately reveal that there is something wrong inside of us. I mean, Jesus says this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He also says that you can judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. And this is why Jesus went so hard after the Pharisees because that's what they taught is we're going to know the scriptures, but we're not going to let it transform our lives. So this morning, I want us to be honest with ourselves. Where do we fall into that trap? Where do we tend to lean in veiling our lives? Is it, is it to ourselves where we don't want to admit that we're not allowing the glory of the gospel to transform us, that we're still holding on to sin, we're still holding on to idols in our lives that we can't let go? Are we veiling ourselves in front of others before the community of God that has placed around us, has been placed around us? Or are we trying to veil our lives before the Lord, which is a ridiculous notion in itself because he knows what's going on. Where are we with that? Where are we with pressing into the glory of God to allow it to change our lives from the inside out? Let's keep going in our text and let's see the next encounter that we see on the mountain, the experience on this mountain. Um, in the next couple of verses, we see Peter's response to what's going on when he sees Jesus in his glorified state. Starting in verse, 20, uh, starting in verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from there, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. Man, if there isn't a disciple that I love more in the scriptures, it's got to be Peter. When you read the life and ministry of Jesus and as he walks with the disciples, man, Peter is one that stands out. And I, I love him for it. I don't know about y'all, but I identify with Peter. Somebody who says one thing and the next thing he's getting thrown under the bus or he, or he is super excited to try to protect the Lord by cutting a guy's ear off. And I mean, Jesus is like, no, this, this isn't how it goes. And he's got a fire about him. And I loved to read about Peter's life. And to be honest with you, as a pastor, as someone who has grown up in the church, man, we need more Peters. We need more Peters who are open-hearted, who are bold, men and women who love Jesus enthusiastically. And sure, he may be a little bit rash. He may be a little bit impulsive, but he's got fire and he's got energy that could stir us up for our love and affection for Jesus. That's why I love Peter. And as we're looking at what Peter's response is here, you see two things. He responds out of fear and he responds in such a way that takes away from what's going on between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. 
But what we see Peter do is something that we can very easily fall into as well. You see, Peter's response that says, let us make tents, is a reference to an Old Testament festival. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, why not? Why not make tents on this mountain? I love to camp, so when I read this, I'm like, yeah, I would, I would do this. We're on a mountain. We're with Jesus. We're with Elijah. We're with Moses. Man, this is going to be a fun deal. Like, we should be like, Peter, get on your phone, open up REI.com, get a good camping tent. Not one of those that fall and break after a couple of years and you're soaked by the rain. But get a good tent. Get some good bacon. Get some good eggs. We're going to do this thing right. We're going to roast some marshmallows. We're going to worship the Lord because he is right in front of us. We're going to have a good time. Which I do need to stop just for a second because I've always wondered this and maybe you guys can answer this for me later. I don't know how we know this is Elijah and Moses. I really don't. Scripture never tells us how they know it's Elijah and Moses. And so from conjecture, what I'm going to take is Elijah and Moses have some type of robe and some type of name tag, maybe etched in, in their glorified state, and they come down with these robes, and Peter, James, and John just know, oh, hey, it's Moses and Elijah, which would tell me that when we get into glory, we also get glorified robes with their names on them. That is not scripture, but it is something I think about. Anyways, getting back to this awesome, awesome campsite. What Peter, is talking, what Peter is doing here is he's trying to bring about a time of worship on this mountain. And that may seem right and that may seem good. But what he's doing is he is trying to have a perpetual night of worship. A night that lasts, an experience that lasts longer than it should. Peter's trying to create this worship experience on this mountain. But what he is saying, and it's something that he's been saying ever since he told Jesus in chapter 9 that Jesus would not suffer. He would not allow him to suffer all the way up until now. Peter's saying, let us stay here. Let us worship in glory, but let's not go down to Jerusalem and die. Let's not go down and suffer. Let us stay here in this moment. And we do this too. We may not try to keep Jesus from dying, but we definitely try to take moments of worship and experiences of worship, and we try to prolong them. We try to make them last. I remember growing up in high school, there were times where I would go to camp and I'd be on this mountaintop high, and you try to make it last between weeks and months, and it's like, oh man, I just don't sin during this time of this mountaintop experience. Now, that's definitely not true but we tried to make these moments last. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to recreate a worship experience and he's trying to provoke a worship experience to last so that Jesus doesn't have to walk down to Jerusalem and so that Jesus doesn't have to suffer. And at times when we do this, when we try to recreate or when we have a worship experience that we're trying to live over and over again, what we're doing is we're beginning to place our hope in that experience over actually worshiping the God who has come to us and revealed himself to us. It's, right, it's not wrong to sit here and have those moments. I'm not saying that because God does come and he does meet us in our place where we are at the times that we need. He understands that I, I, I get that. I've had those moments. 
But I know that there are times we try to come in and say, you know what, last week I had a great worship experience, so I'm gonna try to do the same thing. I'm gonna wake up at this time, I'm gonna drink this coffee, I'm gonna make sure that I have Christian music on in the car, I'm gonna make sure I don't get into a fight with my spouse, not get frustrated at my kids, and I'm gonna walk in here and I'm gonna try to recreate the worship experience I had before. And what we're doing is we're idolizing that experience instead of, a, instead of meeting God, instead of coming before him and just worshiping him, understanding that we may not have that same experience we've had the week before, but we are worshiping the God of the universe. And so that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to prolong an experience. But the other problem, and I'll get back to this in a couple of minutes, but the other problem is Peter's response takes away from what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about. He wasn't listening to what, what was being said. And that's why God comes in. He says, basically, Peter, shut up. Jesus is talking. Listen to him. And I'll get back to that shortly. But the last encounter we see here is God's response. Starting in verse 34, Luke tells us, As Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of that cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now this rebuke may be all too familiar with you guys, especially maybe with parents or even having to deal with younger kids where they are just going on and on and on and they won't be quiet. And you're like, you need to be quiet. You need to shut up. I got to tell you what's going on. And you just break into their lives and you're just like, I got to rebuke you. That's what it may seem like. And to a degree that that's what it is. Jesus or God is telling Peter, hey, stop. Listen to what's going on. Listen to what's being said. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that for Peter, James, and John. It's so much more than that for us. And this is why. You see, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 33, when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, he asked God to reveal his glory to him. He said, God, show me your glory. I can take it. And God was like, no, you can't. You can't. You cannot look on my face and live. And what God was saying to Moses there was, you can't take on my holiness. You can't take on my glory. You can't take on my reality and live because it will destroy you. I am an infinite holy God and you are a sinful man. You cannot take on my glory. And what God was telling Moses is there is a gap between God and mankind. And the reason why Peter and James and John were so afraid entering into this cloud is because in the Old Testament, that cloud represented God's glory. And God's glory was supposed to be fatal. That cloud was supposed to be fatal as they entered into it. So yeah, I would be afraid too, knowing that. Knowing that God's glory is fatal to me as a human, as a sinful man. But God's glory here is also the reason why Peter offered to build three temples. You see, these temples are the same words for tabernacle that are used in the book of Exodus. 
when God's glory would come down, when God's glory would come down to Mount Sinai, the Jews would actually build these tabernacles to protect themselves from his glory. So we see that when God would come down on Mount Sinai, they had to build something to protect them. And what's interesting about this truth is that all religions, not just the Bible, teach us and understand that there's an infinite gap between deity and mankind. There's an infinite gap between God and man. Therefore, all religions have temples. All religions are, have temples that are filled with priests, filled with sacrifices, filled with rites and rituals. and filled and made to protect us from the presence of God. So what Peter is saying here is we need something to protect us. We need a tabernacle so that we can set up sacrifices and we can be protected by the glory, from the glory of God. But then God speaks. God speaks within this cloud and he says to them, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And after he said these things, the cloud was gone. After he finished speaking, the disciples looked up and there was no Elijah. There was no Moses. And this is Luke's way in the strongest terms possible. This is Luke's way of saying, Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. There is nothing but Jesus. Jesus is not just a God on the other side of the gap between God and man, but Jesus is the one who bridges that gap. Jesus is the one that can stand in between mankind and God and we receive his glory. Jesus is the one who bridged that gap. Tim Keller says it way better. He says, there's an infinite gap between God and man and the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus bridges it for us. Jesus bridges that gap for us. Unlike any other religion that teaches that you have to make your way to God, you have to work and earn your salvation. You have to work and earn to be good and right in the presence of God for him to be able to see you and not destroy you for, for your evil and sin. Jesus stands in that gap for us. Jesus has come down and he has made a way. And I wanted to close out on this conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah because it shows us how he bridged that gap for us. If you go back to verse 30 and 31, we see the conversation. And it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. See, the word that Luke uses here for departure is the same word we get the word Exodus from. Soon after this mountaintop experience, this moment of glory would end. And Jesus, who is a figure in which Moses pointed to, would set his face towards Jerusalem to fulfill his own Exodus, knowing that his death and resurrection would fully set the captives free, fully set you and I free from sin and death, from the bondage and slavery that we are held to in the domain of darkness. Christ's death and resurrection frees us from the bondage of sin. 
It frees us from finding identity in this world. It frees us from having to live in a masquerade life as if we have it all together. That exodus freed us from living this way. Because the truth is, guys, we don't have it all together and we never will. And we no longer, because of Christ's work on the cross, we no longer have to do enough to appease God, to try to get across that infinite gap. We no longer have to muster up good faith or try to work out our salvation to make God love us. Because the truth is, as believers in Christ, he can love us no more or no less. Christ's finished work on the cross gives us all the validation we need. His exodus has freed us and give us, given us his validation. And so now God sees us as he would see Christ. We get the same stamp of approval that God gave Christ on that mountaintop. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And this is what the Exodus has done for us. It has bridged that gap between God and man. And this is what we rest in. This is what we rest in. And as Jesus went off that mountain and set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that suffering and the cross was coming, we see that it was for it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured that cross for us. It was for the joy that he took on that shame so that we would receive his righteousness and he would take on the wrath of God. He would take on all of our sin to free us from the bondage of slavery. And that's what we can rest in. That's what we can continue to return to. And so my prayer for you guys this week is that we would rest in that truth that God has bridged the gap for us, that we find our validation in Christ and Christ alone. And as Dwayne talked about this morning, feeling inadequate, I hope that we preach the gospel of this truth to ourselves when we feel inadequate, knowing that God has done it for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, Lord, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. That you have made a way for us as sinners to free us from the bondage of slave, the bondage of sin and slavery, to free us from having to find validation in this world, for us having to try to muster up things so that we can appease you, Lord. You have bridged that gap for us. Lord, as we go out this week, I pray that we would live in light of that truth. That when we feel inadequate, when we feel like we're not enough, we can look to the promise that you've given us. That we are a son and we are a daughter of the God of the universe. That you are pleased in us, that you delight in us. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would rest in that truth. We would rest in the promise that you are making us into the image of Christ, that you are transforming us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that we take that truth and we boldly proclaim that gospel to those around us, that it would empower us to go and share life and the gospel with where you've placed us and with the community and the people that you've placed around us. 
Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord, for we do not deserve any of it. But you saw fit to, to send Christ to save us and to free us from our sin. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at